Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of Mind in America. We are joined by Mr. Paul Gorenson, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Encore Energy Corp. We have a great conversation lined up and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Paul. Hi, Janet. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for um, for joining us on the podcast. Um, We've known each other for a while, and I've been looking forward to the chance to speak with you. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it, too. And uh, hopefully we'll have something of interest to talk about and keep the audience uh, enthralled. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure that you can. So where are, where are you today? I know you travel a lot, but uh, are you in your office in Corpus Christi? I am. It's uh, nice and cool outside and raining. Cool, relatively speaking, in the mid seventies. Uh, it snowed today in Colorado, so I'm envious. Well, you know what they say: you don't have to shovel rain. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty much had enough of it. We're 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 heading to Texas pretty soon, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm looking forward to it. It's Holland Holland Fire went out of the out of the snowbanks, just lost its appeal. It was romantic and lovely at first. But um, so for the benefit of people that don't know you, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I've, uh, I'm from South Texas. I grew up down here and uh, went to college in South Texas at Texas A&I University, which became A&M Kingsville. And uh Got a degree in, in engineering and my professional license as well. And uh, started this uranium industry uh, back in 1987 when I didn't even know it existed in South Texas. Uh, it was just after the oil and gas business collapsed and, uh, in 86. And I had a call from uh, my college uh, dean and the dean of my college. And he uh, said, there's a uranium company looking for a reservoir engineer. And I gave him your name. And that's how I got in. And uh, 35 years later, I've been trying to get out, and they keep bringing me right back in. You you have a, an, an illustrious career. You uh, are credited with opening a number of in situ recovery plants, correct? Yeah. So it's it's been kind of you know the uh, my first one I opened up was in 1991. That was uh, what we now own as the Rosita Project. And I've done a few others since then. Probably most uh, famous, I guess the one I get the most credit for is the one at Alta Mesa when I worked for a private company named Mustania Uranium. And uh, we started that up as a, a greenfield basically and got it into production in 10 months. And uh, because of the timing, we were able to get into production so quickly, we were able to actually set market conditions in the uranium industry for market uranium prices and start raising prices to the point where uh, in 2007, can't remember the exact date, but uh, we I was able to sell roughly 200,000 pounds of uranium at $135 a pound, kind of right at the peak. So, and that's where the, the first mover, being a first mover is really important and, uh, and being able to take advantage of market conditions. And so that's kind of the that was a, a valuable uh, experience for me, and it's kind of it's it uh, basically set the uh, the way I prefer to operate and lead in uh, organizations is to take advantage of uh, timing and and being you know first, you can't always be the first mover, but you can be part of that wave yeah. and uh, catch the catch the rise in the wave before you get to a fall. Now, my understanding, um, 
and we work together, full disclosure for everybody. So uh, we, we speak often. Mistania was a private company and a lot of people didn't really understand the influence that you were having on the market because it was not public. Is that, is, is that a correct statement? Yeah, we did. Yeah, it was a private, it's a private, it was a private family held company, very close, uh, close family holdings. And, uh, and they did not want to disclose much uh, in the way they did their business. And uh, as a result, it, uh, when you talk about the Altamesa project as a whole, people know it by reputation, but there's really, you know, it doesn't have a big footprint like you would have for operations that have been done with public companies yeah. and uh, where you've got public reporting and all that. So, it, you know, we have to rely on on uh, internal reports and other things to talk about it. But uh, it, it, it did uh, create a when we were operating and selling into the Iranian market, we were considered to be a disruptor and uh, in the market. And uh, the the fact that we were private made that that disruptive that re reputation as a disruptor even more frustrating for our competition because they had very little market intelligence on in what we were doing. So it was good to be in that that situation. Uh, but, you know, when you go back and look at it, when I want to talk, you know, it's there's not a lot in the public record that I can point to to say, look, this is what we accomplished. So it's uh, but uh, the reality is, is that uh, it was a it was a really a game changer in the industry. No one had seen being able to put an uranium into the market and auction it off and get higher prices. And uh, and as a result, we were constantly driving the price up. And obviously that continued until, you know, the financial crisis of 2008. And uh, and that basically created the conditions where a lot of the hedge funds were getting market margin calls and that collapsed the market. But uh, it was uh, good to be on the leading edge and uh, uh, the, the to be in the, the suppliers, our, our production competition, like being the being in our company and, and uh, around us uh, to be associated with us. And. It wasn't necessarily, I didn't have necessarily the biggest fan base at the uh, nuclear utilities because <laughs> they're raising the price, but I have a good relationship with the, the folks there, but uh, it was definitely, Mustaine was not seen upon, looked upon for that period of time as being uh, a company that people associated with doing anything the status quo. We were the opposite of the status quo. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I want to go back, you mentioned 08, and so I want to kind of back up, change topic a little bit, um, the financial crisis. I understand that you uh, were in a very interesting place at the time of uh, some rather amazing events in our history in the financial sector. Yeah, it was probably one of the most notorious events that uh, occurred as a result of the 2008 collapse. And I guess what I'm referring to is the Lehman Brothers collapse. Uh, just to add a little bit of a step back and add a little bit of context to the story is that Lehman uh, had a, a uranium trading or, or a trading branch that they wanted to get into to buying uranium and control, have a uh, act like a trading house and a bank uh, to support uh, uh, uranium trades and also to do project financing, et cetera, and get in-kind payments with uh, uranium, et cetera. And they were leveraging the balance sheet of Lehman Brothers to 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 back that, and their their uh, their at the time their their reputed uh, 
prowess in the financial sector and everything else. And so they've been trying to work with uh, Mustania to get a relationship with Mustania. Like I said, a lot of people like to be associated with success. And uh, they wanted to be part, they wanted to uh, to work with us. And they were fairly persistent. And then uh, I can't remember exactly the date, but uh, we were invited to go to their Houston offices, which were out on the belt, Beltway, the, the, the San Houston Beltway. And uh, uh, we... We were promised a lunch and then our limo drive back to to the airport. And uh, but we would meet with the senior VP of uh, institutional banking uh, that would be supporting this program. And he would fly in from the New York headquarters, and we would have a good conversation. It would convince us why we should do business with Lehman. So we we got up there. We went to the the office, sat down, and in a meeting, and started having a conversation with him. And and uh, it got to the point where. You know the the senior VP and and uh, the the manager that we were dealing with, the director that uh, trades, uh, started making a hard pitch as to why Lehman Brothers was the most secure place we could have our money and our and our our valuable commodity placed uh, because of their you know their balance sheet and everything else. And my boss at the time, his name was George Tanner. He was the president of Stania. Uh, uh, he he's always got a reputation of being under. Uh, I say uh, his people underestimated him continuously as being a cowboy slash, uh, you know, heck, but people didn't realize he graduated from Pepperdine and other, you know, some rather prestigious schools. And uh, and so as a result, he. Um, and that comment, he had already done his research on Lehman Brothers, and, and he said, well, you know, they, I look at the Wall Street Journal this morning on our flight up and. Uh, Notice, uh, you know, the market cap of of Lehman, and and I said I did a projected uh, uh, estimate of what our market cap would be as our combined uranium and and uh, oil and gas company, and you know, frankly, we would have a market cap a hundred million dollars larger than Lehman would, and uh, frankly, we should be here talking about buying you out, <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, the the senior VP and and the the director of trades looked at us in kind of a bit of shock and they walked outside and they huddled up. And then um, as they, they came back in and said, okay, the meeting's over with, uh, I think we're good. You guys can leave. And, uh, and as I mentioned, we were supposed to bring us lunch and, and have a limo waiting for us. So as we're walking out, we're seeing people packing boxes and uh, a lot of uh, uh, crying going on. And, uh, uh, going out, uh, that was the day they announced that Lehman collapsed, and uh, they were laying everybody off. And so while we're waiting on the the cat, we had to call a cab. Obviously, the limo wasn't going to come get us. Uh, and uh, we were watching people go into the parking lot with their all their possessions and everything else in a box, right like something you saw in all the bit the the videos from back in that day. It was a really tragic scene, but uh, you know, from us, we dodged a bullet and. Uh, so when we got to the airport and got to security, my boss looked at him and goes, you know what, Paul, let's go. We're going to have the best damn airport hot dog we've <laughs> ever had in our life and celebrate dodging a bullet. <laughs> and so it was kind of our, you know, it was, a, it was a funny story around a very tragic series of events, but it was kind of like you're there in real time seeing history happen and get home. Yeah. And you see the news about Lehman's collapse and everything else. And it's going, wow, I was there at that moment in history, which created a lot you know the the banking rules we have now yeah and uh 
now we're going through another banking situation, which, as usual, when we try to put rules in place, they don't always anticipate all the issues. Yeah. But that was kind of my mark in history. It was, a, it was one of the things I never forgot. Uh, it uh, it showed me you never show your entire hand that you have to deal and and uh, uh, when you're in discussions with people, but also uh, do your homework. And it doesn't hurt to be underestimated at times. Yeah. Wow. Now that's um, uh, one day I'll, I'll tell you my story of, of September 11th and and what happened on to me on that day. But it's always it's always um, interesting when you get a firsthand look at at history, and not realizing it at the time, of course, right? Yeah. So so tell me about working in South Texas. Uh, you're from there, and a lot of your career has been there. I know in Wyoming and places like that as well. Um, I know you're with Encore now, but you've been in South Texas uh, a substantial part of your career. That's right. So I've been and for more than. Uh, 20 years of my 35 years I've, in the industry, I've been in Texas and South Texas, where I got my start in the business, and uh, and this is where I am now. Uh, Texas is is quite a bit is quite unique when it respect to uh, South Texas is unique in, when we talk about uranium mining in general. A lot of people don't realize that it's a it's got large uranium deposits in it, and it's been a historic large you know significant uranium producer in the U.S. Uh, and uh, it gets missed because all the glory goes to New Mexico and Wyoming, et cetera, where all the big production came out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But Texas was a big play even back then. But Texas is also where commercial, you know, my my focus is on such a recovery uh, uranium. And, and that's where the real first commercial successes occurred was in South Texas. And it's because of the unique uh, uh, geography and geology we have here. That makes in such a recovery so uh, uh, such a uh, an economic uh, uh, advantage, um, and that's principally because uh, uh, our our formations are relatively young, uh, because Texas, you know, it's all tertiary deposits, and as a result, it's uh, because it's so young, it has a lot of very active geochemical activity going on in the groundwater, and that's really important for uranium uh, deposits. Having very active geochemical deposits means that it, uh, that you have rather strong reduction and strong uh, uranium deposition, but also it, because of the, the that factor is that when you're doing in situ recovery, we're just adding all we have to do is add oxygen. There's enough geochemical change as a result of just adding oxygen to that reduced environment that creates ideal uh, ideal conditions for a preferential leaching or production of uranium from the sandstones. And uh, the, the, there's a series of sandstones that stack on top of each other that range from out west to, to Laredo, all the way down into Mexico, up almost to Houston, and at different uh, depths uh, to toward, heading towards the Gulf Coast. And it's been it's one of those un, those big uh, secrets out there that uh, a lot of people don't realize is that uh, the fact that uranium exists everywhere except you know, people find out when they see their water quality has a lot of uranium in it and they there's no uranium they're not in the middle of a uranium mine but there's a lot of deposits and uh, and so and it's been relatively undiscovered because of the uniqueness of Texas's land situation uh, it's broke you know it's characterized by 
no federal lands. You can't just go out and state claims. You, you've got to go and negotiate leases. So it gets complicated when you got several, several estates, surface and mineral estates and separate ones. And uh, so it gets complicated. So frankly, you know, it was the oil and gas companies who really pioneered things down here because they had a lot of experience dealing with that type of land work, unlike a lot of the mining industry, mining companies did out west. And uh, and so as a result, you saw the, the U.S. production and the Texas production dominated by oil and gas companies. Uh, now that's dropped off quite a bit, but you know, rarely has there been a large ranch that's been secured for mineral production. And uh, Alta Mesa, that Encore just acquired the whole project. We've got access to 200,000 acres of both surface and mineral of the same executive uh, uh, trustee uh, to uh, to go out and not only produce uranium with known deposits, but also go out and explore and find additional uranium resources. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you know, if, if one goes looks at the technical report, you'll see that uh, there's substantial resources out there already. But the one thing we learned drilling is it gets where it gets exciting is that there's just a whole lot more upside because no one else has drilled out there before for this stuff. Yeah. And so yeah. there's a lot of upside, a lot of opportunity. And I, I think that we can create that, you know, with that success, we can probably take that success and also mirror it and other opportunities as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so but uh, it's exciting because of the, the fact that uh, you, Texas doesn't always get counted amongst the uh, the uranium states. Yeah. Uh, out there but am i am i right that in situ recovery of uranium started in texas it it did it, it really did it, that's where it found its commercial so mm -hmm. uh the a good example is that there was some an early in situ property production down in, down in uh, around heavenville texas which is in a very south the southern part of texas not too far from the mexican border uh, there's some pilot plants that were put in, and then uh, obviously the Palangana deposit in, in Duval County is where they had did a lot of pilot work to get it started. So Union Carbide did that, and then Mobile Oil down in uh, and te Texaco or Getty Oil in Texaco, and uh, Exxon did quite a bit of work in in situ recovery as well down there. Okay. And that's where it really got kicked off. And like I said, the pilot pl plants led to uh, significant commercial production operations. So it's really the first time in situ came into play as being a commercial rather than a research project. Yeah. And so now, if you look at the world that now is that in situ recovery is where 70% of uranium is produced in the world comes from, whether it's in Kazakhstan or in the U.S. Most of it's coming from through in situ recovery and not as much through conventional mining. And that's simply because of the cost advantages and uh, uh, the fact that you can you can leverage uh, lower grade uh, ore bodies and bring those into commercial economic conditions. Yeah. So two points. One, just my observation, Texas should own the development of this technology and and, and take credit for it uh, more so than, than they do. They. Um, you know, that the innovation that happened in the state has created now this global phenomenon. And then the other thing I want, but the other point I want to, to go, go with you is ISR and people, we, we have interviewed Dennis Stover, so there should be some understanding if they're following the podcast, but just give me like a real high level 
non-technical ISR is? Well, ISR is a, the non-invasive production of uranium. So in other words, when I say invasive, we're not digging, uh, we're not sinking shafts and, and uh, digging drifts or workings to go to the ore body to get to the face of the rock, nor are we opening up uh, open pits into the, uh, into the uh, ore body. And that means we don't have to mobilize, move the ore body, the ore itself, physically from the ground into a mill. So you, you avoid the surface disturbances created by those conventional structures uh, activity, but also uh, by sending the ore to a mill and getting it milled, you have uranium uh, tailings after that that are on the surface forever effectively. So what we're doing right now is by, by installing a production pattern, which consists of a recovery of production well and an injection well into the ore body where it's open to it, by injecting native groundwater, in our case, we use an alkaline system, which relies strictly on oxygen, liquid oxygen uh, additions. Uh, that we don't add actually liquid oxygen, we add gas, gaseous oxygen to it. That commingles with the water and it goes, and when it hits the ore, uranium ore body, it, autom it instantaneously rusts that ore body, you know, just like iron rusts with oxygen, uranium does mm -hmm. too. But the unique thing with uranium, it dissolves in the water a lot like salt what salt does and hot water and so uh it becomes very sol it's soluble at that point and we're able to to uh, take that uranium bearing water pump it to the surface and we run over what's called an ion exchange bed so keep it simple if you're familiar with a water softener uh it is exactly the same process as water softener with exception we're, we're taking uranium instead of chloride calcium out Okay. And then once uranium is removed, it goes back into formation, uh, re-injected, so we recycle it again, adding oxygen, continue that cycle. It's a continuous cycle. And uh, the, the advantage of that, again, is there's no surf, minimal surface disturbance. Mm -hmm. Instead of having massive open pits, you have basically six-inch diameter holes. And uh, when we're done mining, we, we're required to go back in and, and clean up the groundwater. We effectively scrub the groundwater clean or clean it back to baseline conditions. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when that's done and signed off by the state agency, we plug the holes and we clean up the surface so you'd never know we were there. There's no recontouring, there's no waste rock piles or anything that has to be managed on the surface. It all is effectively just like, looked like it did, uh, you know, yeah. before we got out there. In fact, uh, you know, most of the land has turned right back into the activity it was at. You know, at our Kingsville Dome project, it's going to be back to cotton fields. And uh, at Rosita, it's going to go back to, to grazing and hunting grounds. So, and, and I know you've made your career in, in this, and there's it's, it's a limited field of people that have this expertise. And um, so are you really one of the the I guess the pioneers in some way of, of developing and enhancing this technology. I know there's people like Dennis Stover and others that, that helped create it, but implementing it, 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 it fair to say that's yeah, a think, very small pool of people. Well, I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, the, I, I wouldn't call, you know, I, I'd say I'm the generation two, Okay, fair. you know, uh, the second generation of uh, uh, in situ recovery, the, the, the first generations of the guys, like Dennis Stover, who took the concept, put it in action, created the technology, but also created the the uh, 
the the uh, the processes and everything else to make it a commercial operation. What I've done in my generation is taken what they've done and improved it and made it get up to scale. So a good example is that most of the ISR operations that you that you saw in the beginning were characterized by very small deposits, limited sizes, uh, very small operations. Uh, and uh, what I've done is taken those type of concepts and grown them to make them to major significant projects with millions of pounds to, to support that, that capital investment. And that's just to take advantage to take advantage of the, the 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 low capital structure that's required for ISR, but also the technology lends itself to that type of scalability, but without having the the initial work done by the the what I call first generation of uh, of uh, ISR developers, uh, uh, we wouldn't have anything to take and leverage to make it successful. Yeah, yeah. And I want to wrap this up here. Um, and then keep going in our next uh, next conversation. So let's just let's just wrap it up today. I've got a, a, a million questions, but we're gonna break okay. and come back. Okay. Okay. So just bear with me. So, but thank you for for part one. So sure thing for, for part two. Stay tuned, right? <laughs>